Welcome to A Dream and a Fear. I'm your host, Max. And I'm Hugo. In this series of podcasts, we'll be diving into the lives, motivations, and legacies of some of history's greatest explorers. So we've just come off a really interesting chat with Benedict Allen, a modern day explorer, uh, one of the very few. Um, and he gave us a really, really personal story. It was really fascinating. A great, great one to get back into after a couple of months without a podcast. Max, do you want to sum it up a bit? Yes. Um, I mean, as Hugo just mentioned, he's very much in the model. Well, in certain respects, he's in the model of this character. Thessinger that that we touched upon is a sort of almost man of the, the the imperial age of exploration, but at the same time very personal and 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 really I was very struck by how uh, he went into some quite profound moments and very very opened up about some quite uh, challenging, really challenging and quite. Uh, traumatic experiences with yeah and very candidly so it was really really interesting chat to have with him um but yeah please please have a listen um it's a it's a cracker um so yeah well let's let's dive straight in could you please Mm. tell us what first stoked your interest in exploration and and i understand that as a child you used to enjoy going on fossil hunting expeditions I did. I'm not sure if that was the beginning or whether it's my dad. My dad was a test pilot and we actually moved up to Cheshire so that he could be one of the test pilots on the Vulcan bomber Mark II. And uh, he used to fly this aircraft, which is incredibly charismatic. I don't know if you know about the Vulcan. He used to carry our nuclear deterrent and uh, he used to fly this aircraft over, over the garden and tip the wings and it was just incredibly exciting as a child. You know, I was only two, three, four, five years old, very early memories um, of this extraordinary aircraft shaking the whole garden. So I think that was a sort of primary influence because I was in awe of my dad being a test pilot. And in those days, test pilots were incredibly exciting characters. After all, Armstrong, the bloke who landed on the moon, uh, was a test pilot. So these people were... I'd, well, through my influential early years, uh, to know that my dad was one of these pioneers was great. And I think it made me believe I could be a pioneer too, because um, I know I sound very posh, but we didn't actually have very much money. Uh, my granny put in various donations. I ended up at a posh public school. But um, we didn't have much money. My, my dad, though, made me feel I could somehow be some sort of pioneer myself. Um, one way or another, I was fascinated by the world and my little fossil hunting expeditions we had to, we moved south from Cheshire down to near London so my dad could be near Heathrow and we, we used to go off on these little expeditions along through Dorset and um, yeah those were the first sort of excursions I had and I think I developed an excitement for discovery and independence at that stage but still, I wasn't sure I was ever going to become an explorer. But it, it became a dream of mine that I would. I knew I wasn't going to be a test pilot. I'm, I'm, far, I'm far too excitable for that. And my dad was much calmer. But uh, I thought in my own way, I could be some sort of person pushing myself. Brilliant. And sort of growing up, you seem to be surrounded by some rather interesting people. Um, one being your cousin and the historian Charles Allen. Did he sort of influence your approach to life? 
Yeah, very much so. Again, he enabled me to believe in myself. Uh, and just to underline the point, you know, I wasn't a natural explorer type. I wasn't sporty. Uh, I remember playing the second 11 cricket and I was out first ball and I, I still remember the humiliation of that. It's my only chance really to <laughs> to blossom into a sporting uh, career at school at least and, and I, I blew it. So basically I, I wasn't sporty, um, wasn't particularly academic. So it, and I, as I said, I didn't have any money and so it didn't look like I was a sort of explorer type, you know, I wasn't naturally a team player or any of those things. Um, but again, seeing my cousin, Charles, he's 20 years older than me, so he was already on the way, he'd already written a lot of books as I was growing up, um, and he was a much more bookish character than my dad, and I think, oh, I thought, oh, maybe one vehicle for being an explorer is to to write, um, but he had this passion for India, and he's my godfather as well, so he's a semi-presence of, of things back from Tibet, I remember he gave me these little woven boots which were too small for me but I still treasured them along with all the things that my dad used to fly uh, bring back from his flights to Africa birds nests a uh, little stuffed crocodile all these wonderful things so the presents I got from my cousin and my dad were put in a little cabinet and I thought one day I'll be like them I'll be going off and finding out about the world and recording it oh, fantastic um and and tracking your develop development a bit further on, I, I saw that as a student, you actually ended up taking part in quite a few scientific expeditions to places like Costa Rica and Iceland. And I was just wondering how, if if the science still interests you, or if that was sort of a stepping stone on the way to the exploration that you ended up doing. I was trying to find my feet. You know, at the age of ten, I declared to my mum and dad. I'm going to become an explorer. And I remember my dad being very sympathetic, saying, oh, I think that's a wonderful thing. And my mum thinking, oh, no, uh, there's another one in the family. You know, just when my dad was getting towards retirement, and I'm, I'm going to risk my life. And they sort of knew there was that... I did have something in common with my dad, which was a sort of determination. Um, and I thought, right, I'm going to be an explorer somehow, and I was trying to find a way of doing it, just trying different avenues um, with increasing sort of desperation. Um, I read environmental science because I thought it's a degree in the world, you know, what could be better preparation for any explorer? Um, and so I, I was trying the sort of scientific line, but I knew, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm quite an excitable person, uh, or at least a passionate person. I wasn't sure... I had what it took to just stick to academic research. And so that avenue of being a pure scientist, well, I toyed with it. I went from that university to Aberdeen, started an MSc in ecology. Um, but by that stage, you know, I was someone who was scattering leaves on my <laughs> floor of the, my little student habitation. And I had stars up, painted up on the ceiling and everyone must have thought I was a total crackpot. But I was rehearsing my mind what it was going to be like out there. I, I really was so certain. I mean, people must have thought I was just going to, I don't know, implode or something. Uh, and I might have done, I, I think, if I hadn't found a way forward, because I had invested so much into this dream. Um, so the scientific expeditions, they were a vehicle, but they weren't really... I, I valued what I was doing, the, the wonderful chances I had to go to places like Brunei, and I even just recovered various unknown species of fig wasp 
But it wasn't enough somehow. That other side of the test pilot in me, the, the one that pushes himself, wasn't satisfied. And so I thought, how am I going to do this? OK, I'll end my degree. I'll give it a go. And I worked in a warehouse, uh, earned enough money to give myself enough money for my, my tickets, essentially, and a little bit more. And off I went to South America, just on a very simple premise that somehow the locals would help me. I mean, it's incredibly naive. I mean, it makes me cringe as I sit here to think of it. But there I was, 22 now, uh, thinking the locals don't have any money either. And <laughs> maybe, you know, they survive, so maybe I can, if, and if they'd be good enough to teach me. Uh, and the idea was just to cross between the mouth of the Orinoco and the mouth of the Amazon. Very, very simple. But very deadly, really. Um, was, and I didn't know what I was taking on. I mean, it was an unbelievably harsh journey that no one attempted. That, just on that, like, you were sort of, I mean, yeah, you went straight into the deep end and you were sort of fo following the footsteps of Walter Riley um, in an attempt to sort of cross El Dorado uh, with, like you say, very little experience. It must have been incredible and, and equally very difficult. Well... Yeah, that first expedition, it, yes, it's true. So Walter Raleigh, there he was looking for El Dorado along with the conquistadors, of course. Um, that was a sort of dream for me and, and perhaps an excuse. I mean, in the end, I didn't really want to follow in anyone's footsteps. There was actually a roadway that was under construction. Uh, it's called the Perimetral Norge, uh, and it's the northern perimeter road that was going to cut through 400 miles or so of the northeast of portion of the Amazon. And I thought, right, I'm going to do this crossing myself. And I knew enough about environmental science to know that no one else had, would have bothered to actually check what was there. Um, and I gradually, gradually uh, steeled myself and, and learned skills from local people and, and did that journey. It was... It was just, I wouldn't say it was a flight of fancy. I knew I was going to hit reality when I was out there. I just didn't know the form of that reality and I didn't know how tough it was going to be. But essentially, I turned up in various remote villages and um, put my life in their hands. I, I said, can you help me? Can you learn? Can you teach me? Um, and what they did was shove me with their children uh, every time in every community. They just didn't want particularly to spend hours and hours trying to teach this hopeless outsider how to cope in the rainforest. Um, but their children were learning and they were learning very fast. And I discovered to my horror almost how skilled they were compared to me. And also discovered that they, they wouldn't do what I was doing themselves because they saw, saw no point and they saw it as almost suicidal. Um, so I, I did complete the journey, but it was it became very, very harsh. I was attacked by gold miners at the end. Uh, my canoe capsized, uh, the dog that I had was washed away down river, it, it came back to find me eventually, uh, but this became almost almost a death march by the end. Uh, I walked for something like three weeks um, out of that forest and very, very nearly died with malaria, with starvation um, and with very little hope really that I'd get out. And yeah, you 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 mentioned your your dog there, um, and it's it seemed like a sort of harrowing experience for you. Um, and exploration in general can be an incredibly lonely place. Um, bonds are often rare, but when you do have bonds, it's often with the animals that you bring. Just reading accounts of sort of polar exploration, 
um, often the psychological tipping point can be triggered um, by the psych the sort of sacrifice or death of these animals you experience that can you tell us a little bit about that yeah it's very difficult to get to the the nub of it in a way because I was so ill by the end my recollections are, are not clear um, the dog I'd picked up from a very remote community and it, it it had wounded paws and I was treating it and and then the dog sort of adopted me and I thought I'll try and find a nice home for it so it, it became my companion out there and um, when this disaster happened these these gold miners crept up to me in the night with their knives and I ran for it uh, I found myself with the dog um, in a, a, a critical situation um, and it, w it was a very very hard experience not only was I dying the dog was dying we basically basically neither of us had anything to eat I had malaria for the first of many times in my career and as I say I was starving um, and as the days went by I, I had this bond with the dog because he was a companion um, and this terrible moment came when I knew I might not come out of fever again. I was going in and out of delirium. Uh, and I thought, next time, it may be too late. And uh, I decided I had to do what it took to survive. And I'd been criticised a lot for it. But people, I suppose, have to remember, I had a dog at home. You know, this wasn't my pet. And um, it, it was very difficult. I thought would my mum and dad expect me to do what it took? And I, th I felt they would. Um, and I knew I wouldn't see my mum and dad again, or my sister or brother or anyone else, unless I took this decision to try and get a little bit of extra sustenance. Um, and so I killed the dog um, and ate what I could of it. Um, but frankly, I was so ill anyway, I was immediately sick and I don't know how much difference it made, except that I knew I'd played my last card. And, um, Whatever happened now, I was on my own, which is very frightening, bearing in mind I'd been alone maybe three weeks at the age of 22. Uh, I just thought, now I've got to walk. And I walked and walked as best I could and stumbled eventually into the daylight. Um, but it, yeah, it's haunted, haunted me ever since this incident. Um, I suppose people now would say it's post-traumatic stress disorder, but I'd, uh, it was knowing that I'd done whatever I took, um, well, it, it didn't seem enough at the time, you know, it, it, it felt that, well, I kept on weighing up these questions, should I have died, should I not, should I have, um, uh, I don't know, I don't, it's, not a, it's not a clean, um, you know, I haven't got to any resolution about it, but I just know that um, I, in that situation, did what I felt was right. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just very, very hard to face that decision with no one to talk to about it. Just me, the rainforest around me, and uh, sort of death ahead of me um, for, for me and the dog. So wow. it, was, it, was, it was hard. Sounds, uh, yeah, really a really tough experience, especially for, for you being that age, only 22. Um, and I suppose touching, you've already touched upon it and, and linking to what you've just said, you're known for, for, for this approach of being completely self-reliant. And with no support from you know other Western companions, and instead you, you as you said, you try to rely on indigenous people for knowledge. Could you tell us a bit about 
generally are you well received i mean you said you put with the children um but have you had any other sort of experiences perhaps where they haven't received you well um it's it's a very good point and i, I suppose i should say that I turned to the local people for financial reasons, as I mentioned. <laughs> there was nothing great about my philosophy at, the, at first. I just thought, oh, you know, I haven't got any money. Um, maybe the locals could help me, sort of attitude. But having staggered day after day after day for three weeks uh, and done whatever I could to fight for my life, I suppose a couple of things happened. One was that I felt I've now got to make my life count, maybe because I'd sacrificed the life of a companion, my dog. Um, but also I felt I had to come to terms with the rainforest um, that had almost tried to kill me. I, I say that now, uh, but at the time it just seemed instinctive that I needed to get back to that rainforest. When I say it almost tried to kill me, I make it sound like a person, but you feel when you're isolated in rainforest for days on end that everything there, every species around you is the best uh, it's a highly competitive environment and as a human, humans aren't strong creatures. We're, we're good when we work together, but alone we're very vulnerable physically and um, I somehow felt I had to come to terms with this, this rainforest, know how to cope with it in the future. And so that led me to go to New Guinea uh, because it's a place with a great many people in, many more indigenous people spread through the rainforest than there are in the Amazon. And um, so off I went to New Guinea to talk to the locals and ask for their help. And this time I decided to do it much more seriously. I felt uh, now this really was the beginnings of a philosophy. From now on, it was very much, uh, very clear in my head. Turn to the local people because they have the answers and um, it's them that I need to, I, it's right to turn to rather than look to my world, look to the local people who, who belong in the place. So it became much more complicated, uh, much clearer in my head that this is the right approach. If for someone like me who wants to understand that environment and sees the local people as a window into that environment, this was the way. And so I went to New Guinea, um, ended up uh, going through an initiation ceremony. It was a traditional ceremony in the, of the Sipik, which is the big river winding through northern Papua New Guinea, and uh, the the Nyara people uh, looked after me and allowed me to go through the ceremony, which was designed to make their men into men as strong boys into men as strong as crocodiles. Uh, and uh, yeah, I went through their ceremony. Um, I they were very very good to me, allowing me to go through the ceremony. But they also were very very strong people. The Nyara they. Um, very clear in their mind that they have the answers. <laughs> That's how they would they would say that to me all the time. We have the answers. You do not have the answers. Um, and so um, for them, it wasn't. It, it was extraordinary that an outsider would want to go through their ceremony. I, I ought to mention it was a secret sacred ceremony. So no one was very clear about what happened in the ceremony, apart from the men who'd undergone it. And the men who'd undergone it had scars up and down their chest and back, hundreds and hundreds of bumps effectively the scarification marks that uh, were the marks of the crocodile um, so I was going to end up with these scars but what I didn't know was I was also going to have to earn those scars uh, these marks and um, I was with the other initiates I was beaten every single day um, five times a day and it was 
as it, well, it turns out, I, I don't think it's a ceremony that's harsher on the whole planet. I mean, it's difficult to believe. There may be. I mean, what bad luck, you know, t- turning up with these people. Anyway, they, they were extraordinarily good to me in that they allowed me to go through this ceremony, which they felt was what enabled them to cope with their world. The ceremony is all about working together because you were only beaten together. You had to look after each other uh, and prove resilient day after day as you were beaten. Um, and essentially we knew we weren't going to be allowed out of the ceremony until we were working together, um, not showing any fear, protecting each other. And uh, yeah, six weeks later, uh, I came out of the ceremony and not feeling very much stronger, I have to say. <laughs> I felt a, a wreck. But nonetheless, um, it was an extraordinary experience and a great privilege. Um, there have been other communities I've found it harder to get close to. Um, and bearing in mind that uh, Westerners, that, or the world that I had come from, is very often perceived as a threat, and quite rightly, because we are a threat. It, it's extraordinary how generous, in, in general, people have been to me in letting me try to document their culture. But I think the reason why the Nyara let me go through the ceremony was they knew uh, it, the ceremony was falling apart. You know, generations weren't so keen on undergoing this brutality, and uh, they they felt here was a chance for someone to write it, their traditions down for the future. Wow, I mean, amazing stuff. Probably, like you say, one of the last uh, people or last generations so uh, to go through that. And and I suppose it's interesting there just to hear you say that rightly they rightly perceive uh, the West or Westerners as a threat. And I suppose that links to someone we'll probably ask you about a bit later, um, Thesiger. But um, I just wanted to to ask you about your experience of making first contact with the, the is it the Yifo people in Papua mm. New Guinea? Because obviously you have it feels was there some sort of conflict in you thinking, okay, we are this the West in some way does sort of have a tendency to maybe corrupt uh, uh, these cultures to put up for lack of a better word. Um, mm. But at the same time, obviously an incredible experience and, and, and kind of beautiful in its own right to, to, to make first contact with the people. Yes, it wasn't a, a, a simple situation. And actually, most of these situations aren't, aren't that simple. I, I made first contact with another lot of people as well called the Obini in West Papua. Uh, in that case, uh, missionaries were moving in loggers were moving in and it was a matter of weeks before the Albany would cease to exist which is in fact what happened the Albany don't exist anymore they've scattered off to various places uh, and their forest is being cut down now but um, the Yifo were unusual um, they had decided to stay up on the mountain and all the all their neighbours had come down because missionaries kept on saying you're we, we've got the chance to get you to heaven, otherwise you're going to go to hell. Also, we've got medical handouts. Um, <laughs> one way or another, everyone felt drawn down to the lowlands to the, this mission station called Pasorio. But the IFO, although they'd never seen it, the outside world, uh, they had no direct contact with it. They had, had direct contact with their neighbours, who they were generally at war with, I ought to say, and um, they saw their neighbours disappearing. Um, at the same time, I was in the lowlands for, for quite a while researching what I could of local cultures uh, a gold rush happened and all hell broke out I mean, the mission 
closed down because no one wanted to pray anymore. As far as they were concerned, the locals were concerned, they, their prayers had been answered. I mean, this is unbelievable. Gold was being found everywhere. Um, so helicopters are flying all over the place. And I thought, there the IFO up on that mountain, um, seeing these helicopters fly in the sky, uh, they must be totally bewildered and maybe afraid. Um, and I heard reports from the neighbours that had come down the mountain now that the IFO were, were terrified and confused. And um, Anyway, I took it on myself to, to go up and visit the IFO. Um, I was escorted by two young people related to the IFO. Um, and they said, please, please come and help our relatives. And so I felt I had an entree. I felt I, it was morally justified to go and see the IFO. At the same time, I felt it was a matter of days before the IFO came down the mountain to find out what was going on. Um, so I went up the mountain. I mean, very, very harsh conditions indeed. It was a place that was barely mapped. Uh, it was almost total cloud cover, permanent cloud cover, in the central range of New Guinea. And so this was a place less mapped than the Amazon and is still today. Uh, so it's very, very difficult. But thanks to these two people who led me uh, to this community, uh, I was able to, um, to well, I was going to say to start talking to them, but it, it didn't open like that at all. The IFO had obviously been watching us approach. And although they knew the two people who were leading me, they um, saw me and they thought, uh, this must be one of these missionaries we've heard about, uh, or he's one of these gold miners. Either way, they're after us. They're after our souls or they're after our land for that gold. And so they began a, what's the right phrase, a sort of war dance, I suppose, uh, certainly a, a show, a um, display. Uh, and essentially the, 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 a band of Yaifu young men had bows and arrows already loaded, as it were. They were slapping the strings, uh, sort of tempting us to fight them um, and yeah it all looked like it was all going to end very nastily and very quickly actually because <laughs> we were standing there not knowing what to do um, and um, yeah it, 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 the, this dancing went on a long, long time with uh, the Ifu whooping and clattering their bows and arrows and threatening us um, daring us to attack them first and I just stood there stood there with the locals and these two Yaifu people who led us in and um yeah th then it stopped the dancing stopped everyone clattered to a halt um and um yeah I d I, they were exhausted um <laughs> we, had, we hadn't actually reacted because i just thought if we do anything now other than to stand here we're just going to be killed um and eventually um trying to open up communications with the two people who'd led me there trying to explain that we weren't missionaries and I was just trying to recall their life before they left the mountain. Um, and we settled in, and I, but I was only with the IFO probably for a week or 10 days. It's very, very poignant thinking these are the last days before they give up their independence, their life, the world they've known up in the clouds and forests um, to surrender it all and, and join the outside world as all their neighbors had. Um, almost 30 years later, just a few years ago, I went back to the IFO, expecting them to be down in the lowlands uh, and be gold miners now. Um, and I found the whole community still up there on the mountain. They had actually changed their mind after they after I left and decided to stay up there. Um, and so they still have their independence. Um, and they've decided they didn't want whatever we offered in the outside world.
quite incredible story. Um, moving to more sort of more general question, there seems to be a, a sort of a couple of philosophical positions to adventure. Um, one being your sort of Scott flag bearing characters, and then your sort of approach, which is a lot, a lot more personal. Um, can you sort of elaborate on that a bit? Well, there are very different strands in the field that we call exploration. Um, I think part of the tradition of, of Scott simply was science, and people forget, yes, he, he wasn't the first to the South Pole, but he left us two years of scientific data, some of which we still use today, and that was his legacy. Um, though that was an imperial age, uh, I got into trouble years ago by saying the lifeblood of exploration is imperialism. Um, and what I meant was it's all about us. You know, even as scientists, we, we may not be trying to spread an empire, but, well, we in the West have a rationalising take on the world. And that's just our view of how things are. Um, uh, so we're still sort of expanding our, our domain, as it were. And then, of course, there's the more obvious imperialism through exploration with the conquistadors or the spreading of Christianity or this and that. Um, my approach was, was to try and do the opposite. And, um, yeah, I remember ending a TV series uh, with words something like, to me, this might sound rather grand, by the way, so warning. Um, <laughs> to me, exploration isn't about planting flags. It's not about conquering nature. It's not about going somewhere in order to make a mark. It's about the opposite. It's about opening yourself up, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and letting the place make its mark on you. Um, and this was what I was trying to do. So I was trying to immerse myself, trying to disappear, trying not to take Western companions, trying not to take back up, uh, but simply uh, absorb as much as I could. And there are flaws in that, of course, because you can never immerse yourself totally you can never let go of your culture and in fact if you did you'd just become insane I mean you, you need to have a very very strong sense of who you are in order to survive mentally in any of these difficult situations um, but it is a very different strand from the uh, the polar exploration strand even today which is generally about proving yourself generally about testing yourself um, and it is essentially about self well, thank you. That's yeah, really, really fascinating. And and linking to that, you you saying there were some disadvantages. Uh, sort of would, wanted to link that to the fact that not all of your expeditions have been uh, successful, as you've already al alluded to. And in Papua New Guinea, on one of your trips, you actually had to be rescued by helicopter, which which later became national news, and and you were criticised for that. Uh, do you think that was fair? That criticism. Well. The good thing is, as far as I was concerned, the expedition was a huge success and no one really was interested in that. They want, to, they want to understand why someone in the 21st century goes off without a phone, without a sat-nav uh, or GPS uh, and, and alone. You know, why would someone want to do that? Well, what had been so wonderful about that expedition was this was the time I found Corsai. I mentioned how... I left that community, I didn't explain it very well, but I decided to try and go over the mountain to keep away from all the gold miners. And this extraordinary man, of course, I took it on himself to, to help me over the mountain for the first time ever. 
the IFO had crossed over the central range and we had to find the way as best we could terribly harsh condition he didn't have clothes obviously um, and uh, even when I offered him my blanket at night he just used it as a pillow uh, and just curled up by the fire which we had to keep going through the night very very harsh indeed and I went back and found of course I still alive all these years later um, and that was such a wonderful moment to find that the Yifo had stayed put on the mountain they decided they didn't want the gold they didn't want the missionaries they had their what they needed which was bigger gardens because the neighbors had all gone um, <laughs> and the neighbors weren't attacking them uh, anymore so that meant they get could get lots of sleep at night and they didn't have to get up in the night to attack their neighbors and so everything was brilliant as far as they were concerned because the missionaries had taken away the neighbors um, one way or another the yifo had thrived and this is what i found on this last expedition and it was just absolutely brilliant to hug Corsai and hear him say Benedict, Benedict and for me to hug him and say Corsai, Corsai it was just a very very special moment but having done that um, again I repeated this journey that Corsai had done with me all these years before across the mountain um, but this time the journey ended very differently I couldn't get out of the mountains a war broke out between two warring factions on the other side of the mountain uh, and uh, I was trapped. I got malaria again. I got dengue fever um, and got weaker and weaker. Um, whether I was rescued is a, is a, is a debatable point. Um, basically, the outside world decided they wanted to extract me and rescue me. Um, and um, I certainly a newspaper did extract me. And, um, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I was in a very bad condition by that stage. Um, it, it, I suppose the most interesting bit of the story is why you know, can I justify having gone alone without a phone, without a navigation? Um, and for me, it's very, very clear in my mind, if, if I go on another expedition, I will be, I think, next year, um, I'll do exactly the same. Because far from being the sort of leftover that I was portrayed as, this sort of, uh, well, there's an explorer, Wilfred Thessinger, um, who's often regarded as the last of the great explorers. You know, rather than being seen as one of those, someone who's left over from the Victorian era, I feel it's incredibly relevant now that people go out into the middle of nowhere and disconnect because we're all so connected. Uh, even me, who's not very good with technology, has a phone all the time that I'm tweeting this and communicating that. Um, we've got to step away, uh, at least some of us, and see what the world is without being in our own echo chamber. So to me, it's actually become more relevant rather than less that certain people disconnect from our world and um, and, and pluck up their courage and, and disappear and then come back again and, and tell us what the world is out there brilliant and yeah just on your on that when when the helicopter came to pick you up there, there's a lot of sort of parallels to you and um livingston but moving on to sort of wilford tessinger who you, who you mentioned just then you seem it's he sort of has seemed to greatly influence your life and your ex, your approach to exploration can you tell the listeners who wilfred was and what was it about his character that sort of so influenced you yeah, it may, it may be worth just mentioning about 
this helicopter coming down to to pick me up. It, it was very much a Livingston moment in that. Uh, what was it? I don't know. Well, about 150 years ago. In fact, only about two weeks ago. And that was the anniversary of Stanley, the explorer, or rather newspaper man, an explorer, uh, heading out across Africa, sponsored by the New York Herald, to find the lost explorer Livingston. And of course, there's famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Well, that's um, this whole scenario sort of played out again with a newspaper heading off around the world, finding the lost explorer. Um, Livingston didn't regard himself as lost. I didn't regard myself as lost. And yet that became the story that uh, I was sort of uh, out of my depth, that didn't understand the situation. Uh, and I sort of resented that, which is why I find it hard to accept the word rescued. I mean, the fact was, yes, the Daily Mail, thank, thank goodness, they, they did whisk me away. Um, but I'd always said to the locals, your life is no more important than mine. It's incredibly important as we do these expeditions that you you feel that I'm a friend. Uh, and we're, we do everything together. We cook together, we walk together, I carry the same loads as you. We're doing everything together. Uh, and then suddenly it was demonstrated that I wasn't the same as them, that my life was more valuable than them because a helicopter had come paid for by people at the other end of the planet uh, and I was whisked away to safety and the locals with their own issues, their own war, uh, were ignored. So it's very hard. Uh, I felt I'd betrayed the local people and my principles. Um, but living... Uh, yeah, Thessinger, um, an extraordinary character who... Well, his autobiography was called A Life of My Choice. Uh, he, he was a bit of a throwback to another era. I mean, <laughs> having claimed that I'm not, um, he was. Um, no, <laughs> I think he'd be very pleased, actually, that I, I said he was. Uh, he had this war with the combustion engine, as he called it. Uh, he felt that we were becoming weaker, that the, the people he wanted to be with were real men. And he, he very much was a man's man, I have to say. Uh, he, he wasn't so much interested in, in women. He, he was his, the company he enjoyed was with people who were tough, uh, had tough lives, had extraordinary resilience, um, and that was life that he lived uh, without mod cons. Um, so out in Arabia, out in Africa, um, the first time I met him, I think, was actually out in Africa. Uh, we didn't get on particularly well. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think he, whether he thought I was trying to be like him, I don't know, I doubt it. I think he just felt, uh, um, well, he wanted his world and his, his life and he didn't want to be questioned too closely by someone else who'd uh, lived with Indigenous people and local people uh, for much of his life because he was doing it his way. And that's fair enough. Um, extraordinary man, very, very tough, very, very proud and uh, remarkable, uh, but very out of step with the modern age. And I'm very keen on saying whatever anyone else thinks, that actually exploration is very relevant now uh, and perhaps more important than ever because of what's happening to the planet. Uh, and that particular idea of immersing yourself with people who are in touch in a way that we in the West aren't is incredibly valuable, more valuable than ever, need more people who just simply live and listen out there. Yeah, well, I think we're definitely uh, with you on that one. And um, 
referring back to Thessinger, your your lives sort of overlapped when you also set out on the thousand mile crossing of the the Gobi Desert. Uh, how tough was that experience, and, and and maybe especially in comparison to some of your other your other uh, expeditions? Well, yeah, I, Thessinger very much was a desert man. He crossed the empty quarter, I think, twice, uh, uh, and that for for him was what it was all about. For me, um, I'd started off very much as a rainforest person, and that was simply, as I said, the the key was local people and there were a lot of local people indigenous people who were um, very in touch with their environment in rainforest it just it sort of worked out that I go to the rainforest and I'd understand the local people and and how they coped with it Um, so I found myself getting a sort of specialized knowledge of rainforest so again and again I went to rainforest Amazon New Guinea Sumatra so on Um, and then I felt, and this is, makes me think it might be the test pilot in me, that I was getting a bit too comfortable. Um, and I thought desert, desert's harsher, more difficult. So I sort of felt I should evolve, push myself a bit more. Because my gen, my expeditions had fallen into a pattern, which was I live with the local people, learn skills, and then go on a long journey to test myself and see how much I'd learned. Um, and so now it became the desert. So I learned about camels in the Skeleton Coast, which is in South West Africa was given extraordinary permission to, for the first time, walk the full length of the Namib Desert, which is scattered with camel uh, with diamonds. And the reason why I was allowed to do the journey was because I, I said I'll take camels, uh, and camels don't leave a damaging ecological footprint on the ground. Um, and the fact is, if I if I'd gone with vehicles, not only would I have damaged the environment, but also I would have um, probably well, I might have been tempted to grab lots of diamonds as I went along. I mean, it's very, very difficult to, to check vehicles for diamonds, whereas camels are quite easy to x-ray. So anyway, I walked up the Narmi Desert um, because I was allowed to go with, because I took camels, um, and then graduated towards the Gobi, a much bigger desert. Um, it, it was very, very harsh, but um, the freedom I found in the desert was something I'd never experienced in rainforest. I, I mentioned earlier how the rainforest is somewhere that oppresses you, that all this life around you, you feel like you're inside a bottle almost. It's not just because of the humidity, but the, the intensity of life around you. And you feel crowded. You're, you're in a crowded environment. You feel, you know, that lonely feeling you feel in a city. is like that when you're alone in a city, that, that feeling of... Everyone else has got their lives. That's what it can feel like in the rainforest. No horizon, no sense of the outside world because uh, you can't look forward to the future because the trees are everywhere. The desert, I could see ahead. It was very tough. I had to walk, I, I think, an average 30 miles a day, but uh, some days, I, th- I, I mustn't exaggerate, but maybe, well, 40 Mars. It 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 was it, it wasn't all sand dunes, I should say. We're not, I'm not talking about uh scrabbling up these sand dunes. It was very good walking conditions. It was it was gravel generally. But um it's always that sense of uh you could see the horizon, you could edging towards the horizon. I loved it. Um I love the companionship I had with the camels. I was alone with the camels, I was alone for six weeks out there. Um and I had this bond with these creatures who, which I suppose I should say, although they did seem like people, 
by the end, uh, these camels were the perfect survival machine. Uh, and because of their adaptations to the desert, uh, I was okay. As long as the camels kept with me, I knew I was safe. The danger always was that they would want to go home um, and leave me, and uh, then I would have been in real trouble. But, it, yeah, it's harsh. Every day, every daylight hour, I had to spend either walking or caring for the camels, making sure they got enough grazing. But because of this distance I had to do every day, because the winter was coming on, there's a sort of weather window um, in the in the Gobi. You have to, any crossing through has to be in the autumn. When the camels are healthier, they've had the summer to feed. Uh, but now the winter was coming on and the temperature dropping about half a degree a day. A day. So started off, it's quite too hot. Ended up far too cold. <laughs> Coming out of the desert, uh, it was oh, minus five, ten at night. Um, not good. I had no tent. I should say. <laughs> I had to cuddle up between the camels. Um, so it was harsh, but I I also loved it. That that sense of being like uh, on a boat navigating a sea. It's a wonderful sense of independence and uh, detachment from the world while I built my own world out there. Brilliant. And another man who claimed to have crossed this region was Slavomir Rauick in his quite incredible survival story that saw him escape from a Soviet gulag and trek 4,000 miles to safety in British India. But in recent years, his claims have sort of been put to question. Um, As a man who's obviously walked this region, uh, do you think there's reason to be sort of sceptical? Yeah, I was so inspired by that story um, long, long ago. And I I love the courage, that the tale of uh, tale of freedom, but there's the spirit of the person and uh, of the narrator. I thought it was absolutely glorious. Um, and so I got... Yeah, I, 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 suppose, I suppose I questioned it when I was younger. I thought, hmm, it's a desert really like that. Anyway, then I went out to the Gobi and I distinctly remembered a passage about palm trees. And there were no palm trees in the in the Gobi. Palm trees are the sort of thing you imagine if you don't know about deserts would be out there. It's a sort of stereotypical idea of a desert. Um, and so that didn't particularly ring true to me. Um, but still, I let it pass and, and then it was put to me afterwards much later by people who really had studied his records look just not making sense he's making these great claims it, it, it seems to have been somewhere else at the time it, uh, and then I thought uh, I, I was so disappointed because I just thought I want to believe in this man with his dream it's been quite hard in my career to just keep going um, to find the passion to find the the motive uh, year after year, when you've been, I've had malaria how many times now? Five times, I can't even remember. And I've been, there's been a lot of terrible things. And that's okay, because it's my choice. You know, I don't, I'm not asking for sympathy. Uh, I'm so fortunate um, to have gone off and done these things. Um, but for him, it was a different journey. It was a journey of freedom, escaping the gulag and, and finding his peace at the end. Uh, and to hear that. The whole thing might have been made up. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's sad to have a, a hero who's sort of fallen. And so when you, whenever you finish such a trip, whether it's walking across the Gobi Desert or Papua New Guinea or whatever environment you find yourself in, 
and in tune with nature and as you've described so so wonderfully the surroundings and the different ways that you, you're aware of, of 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 being connected to to the various aspects of your environment um when you return back to western life with your phone and and, and you're being connected does that make you more aware of of, of or more acutely aware of the things that mo- modern uh, western life is lacking Yes, I, I find myself a bit uh, cautious because so many people say to me, oh, it's wonderful, the life uh, out there, that why can't we leave these indigenous people alone? And Of course, um, I should say, that one by one, I've seen communities wiped out, all their environment destroyed by us or by other industrialised nations. Um, but I've also had malaria. I've also seen the infant mortality rates various groups I've seen uh, is a, one woman died in my hands because um, she probably had cerebral malaria um, but everyone looked to me because I was the only person with any medication uh, in this particular village to save her and I couldn't and she died and, and, and I knew her very well and, and so these the, these terrible incidents uh, of maybe more nuanced, I suppose, in my in my feeling, it's about what we have and what other people might not have. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it's a it's a complicated picture. But I suppose the big thing is this connectedness that I've not, I've talked about earlier. I've, I've talked about how I've wanted on my expeditions to disconnect from our world in all the in order to see what other people are like, but also look back on our own society. Um, one big thing that leaps out is the connectedness that they, this is generalising about hundreds of different people, uh, communities around the world, but they have a, a connectedness with their environment. And this might sound all very obvious now because we're waking up to it with the, the uh, COP talks and so on, and that we're people are realising about the climate crisis at last uh, but it, it's been painfully obvious for 20-30 years and of course I read environmental science and ecology and so on so I sort of had a head start but that intimate knowledge of your dependency of your environment, the cause and effect where you'll get your water where you'll get your shelter that the environment around you isn't a threat it's not a jungle, it's your food shelter, medicine You know, these basic obvious things are staring you in the face uh, when you're in a very remote community where there's no outside help or very little um, and so it's that this confused world we live in with so many distractions with so many unnecess- unnecessary things uh, they're all blocking us from the basic reality which is that we have this dependency on our environment and um, yeah I hope we'll sort it out before it's too late Brilliant. Thank, thanks, Benedict. Um, Max is going to laugh at me for plugging this, but I did my own sort of little adventure uh, two years ago, and I cycled from Turkey to India over six months living in a tent. Um, and the two most sort of profound things I learned during that period was, one, just how adaptable the human body is to more extreme conditions, something in modern society we've almost forgotten. Uh, and two, what sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs demonstrates is how unimportant material goods are as long as you've got the basics covered. I was just wondering what what are the sort of most profound things you've learned from, from your adventures? 
Oh, <laughs> it's awful. Because I should, I should be able to say, wow. Okay, so the answer is. Are you ready? <laughs> the answer is life is. I know because I've uh, I've almost died so many times, and it's a, a, a new thoughts, and I, I can say that so glibly, but it it is. I suppose it's true. I've certainly sort of been through the ringer a lot, and I would have thought something profound should come out of that. You know, you would have thought, you'd hope. Um, <laughs> and the sad thing is, I think it's all quite basic. I, I think it's that we are all the same, and. Uh, the, the humans, I, I suppose the reason why I find this so important to say is that we instinctively see the remote people I've lived with as different, as the other. You know, so I mentioned the a crocodile initiation ceremony. It sounds incredibly exotic that these people should scar themselves permanently with bamboo blades to look like a crocodile. Uh, and other people, called the Matses, I lived with in the Amazon, they were had a jaguar cult, anthropologists would say. They had spines in their lips and noses to represent jaguar whiskers and tattoos across their faces. So they wanted to take on the strength of a different top predator and its agility and its intelligence and so on. So um, this is all sounds so different from us. And of course it is different a different way of life but the same needs the same cares the same jealousies uh, in my life I've been with mean people generous people meek people uh, crabby niggly nasty people the whole range of humanity again and again repeat in every single village and I think it's important just to remember that uh, that's uh, yeah the crocodile people had a crocodile ancestor called the Avuquark that you could talk about. Uh, but actually, this is just a role model. And the Jaguar is another useful role model. And we have our own role models on Strictly Come Dancing or whatever it is. Um, but the basic impulses are the same. We try and do our best for our family, uh, just that stuff gets in the way because we're very cluttered uh, in our in our world with stuff. Um, so it's an obvious thing, but I think it just... It's probably the. I don't, it's the thing that strikes me again and again. I, I find I'm just with um, the the same people with the same basic hopes and fears all around the world, wherever I go. Brilliant, and you, you've you've uh, touched upon sort of family uh, during this podcast. But a question I have is, how do you sort of reconcile family with exploration? And another question, would you now encourage your children to do what you have done? Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> dear, dear, dear. Well, okay, it is a problem. And the way I do my exploration, it, it's not how most people do it, let's face it. Most people go off on an expedition with a team, uh, with uh, backup, uh, with uh, communications. And as a polar explorer, I know who... On an expedition, he rings up his children and wishes them good night and, and so on, or sings happy birthday, and other sailors who ring up and ask for dental treatment or advice on how to do their teeth, cope with a problem with their teeth. And um, it's not how I do it. I, I, I separate off. Um, so it's it's very hard um, uh, for my family. I should say I've cut down hugely on my expeditions since I've had children, so my oldest child is 14 so the last 14 years I haven't done very much um, I'm more careful 
now. Explorers always say that, don't they? They're adventurers. But I feel uh, much more sense of terror uh, as I leave that I haven't got it right, that I'm doing... I have terrible niggling doubts. I always had them anyway, but I used to worry that I was going to let down my mum and dad before they'd never know what had happened to their son. Um, and now I worry that my children uh, would not know what happened to me and I'd, I'd let them down. Um, so... Yeah, the same worries, uh, but it's so much more intense when you're a parent because you have a duty to your children. Um, and so I have to make sure I'm, I come back. Um, and at the same time, I think it's also important that you are a role model, that you show that you shouldn't be afraid of this and that, that you do carry your convictions through, that you do show resilience, you do show... Uh, a sense of devotion to your subject, you know, it's a useful lessons, um, and I hope that also gets passed on. But um, they're not really what I think about as I leave. I, I worry, just worry that uh, I'll make a mess of it and let them down. And a very general question, but the one that I'm interested to ask you is: of all the places that you've been to in the world, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, I don't know. It's so hard because uh, places that I've lived in, it, they tend to come and go in their in their beauty. You know, there'll be some moment, even in the Arctic. I I trained a dog team in the Russian Far East, and I tried to cross the Bering Strait, and it was a nightmare expedition. The dogs knew they had an amateur on their hands, and I, <laughs> they were really hard harsh with me until I earned their respect um, but that expedition became very beautiful it's not quite what you're asking because you're asking about place but the experience turned from an ugly one when I had frostbite on my fingertips and I was in pain every day and the dogs were just determined not to listen to me because they didn't believe in me and then it changed as we got deeper and deeper into the Arctic the dogs learned to trust me I learned to trust them we had this wonderful beautiful relationship and suddenly this environment that had seemed nothing but uh, painful to me and harsh seemed incredibly beautiful looking out across the Arctic uh, with this dry clean air it was just the most exhilarating thing so sometimes places just become beautiful because of your experience um, uh, I suppose if I had to choose a skeleton coast or maybe the Gobi Desert, you know, they, these deserts with their clean air, something so uplifting about them. Um, uh, but it all depends on whether things are going well, you know. <laughs> these places aren't so beautiful if the camel's just kicked over your only water and uh, you're suddenly in this beautiful place but you're going to die there. You know, it, it, suddenly that case, place becomes a hellhole. So I think it's all relative to how you're Yeah, well, you, well, you, you mentioned you had malaria five times. I'm sure that affects uh, things as well. Um, mm. But um, and, and finally, just a, a firm favourite uh, with our listeners, this question. If you could sit down for a pint with, with one explorer from history, who would it be and why? Yeah, mm, I think... Sounds an odd choice, but it'd probably be James Cook, uh, the uh, the navigator of genius, you know, man of the Enlightenment. So he's a controversial character because, of course, with Cook came Britain's possession of Australia, 
um, the declaration of Australia as a sort of uninhabited place. It was called this Terra Nulla, um, which it clearly wasn't. But he, I, th I think that would make the conversation more interesting in a way because he wasn't, he, he was a person who saw the Aborigines and didn't dismiss them out of hand. Um, he actually was very sympathetic. Uh, he, he, he said that often I think the the local people, the Aborigines of this land, are uh, in a better position than our poor wretches struggling in back at home. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he was a farmhand, someone who was uh, brought up in poverty and um, knew what it was to struggle, and yet he rose to greatness through his ability as a navigator uh, and as a leader, uh, and always this sense of empathy um, with the unknown. Um, so yes, he, he, his journeys led to further imperialism and so on, but the man himself, extraordinarily resilient, uh, great leader, and um, with a lovely side to his character. So um, yeah, I think I'd, that one pint might lead to a second pint, and a third pint, uh, but it'd be, it'd be great to um, just talk to him about how he saw the world back then in the 18th century, you know, before the Victorians, but when there were still great oceans to cross and uh, when the world was so uh, unknown to Europe. Great. I think, yeah, Cook's a sort of fitting, fitting end to the podcast. Um, we're right on the 60-minute mark, so I just want to say thank you from both myself and Max for giving us such a personal story. Um, it's slightly different to what we've, we've had before, so thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you, Ben. It's again to reiterate, Hugo, just hearing some very, uh, uh, like you say, poignant, poignant moments from your own uh, history, personal history. So, so thank you for sharing those.